Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you today. It's good almost to see you. You know, it's obvious that uh, somebody has not paid their amen tuition. Uh, we can't afford the lights, you know. I don't know what the deal is in here. I hope you all can see okay. Uh, guys, turn to Deuteronomy 24. And uh, let's read this chapter. It has a mixture of things in it, but there's a dominant theme about protecting the vulnerable. And before we read it, let me, let me just make a comment about, about what we've been reading these last several chapters. We're in the section, of course, where God is stipulating the nature of the relationship between himself and his church. How are you all to live among each other? How are you all to live with, with me in your presence? And this is a great lesson for men today. How are we to live with our neighbors? And how are we to live before the face of God? Same thing. And God is still expecting and calling upon his church to live in fellowship with him and with each other. Most people in this room, when we think about what it means to be a follower of Christ, we think about our belief system. What doctrines is it that you, what doctrines are there that you believe in and hopefully are deeply convicted about? And that more or less defines who you are religiously. In the Old Testament, that was true, but it was not nearly the whole story. In fact, if you had asked someone what really made them a follower of Jehovah, they would have talked about the very things we've been studying. It's how you live your life. And those two things go together. Dominantly in the 21st century, at least in the West, we talk about the cerebral aspects of faith. In the Middle East, they would have talked about your hands and your feet and your mouth and what you were doing with your substance to improve the condition of your neighbor and to live a life before God that was honoring to him. It was really what you did. And when you, when you look at the words of Jesus Christ, at least most of them, most of them have to do with what you do with your life, that that really is your testimony in a lot of ways. And certainly it is the evidence of your love for God. Jesus said, classically, if you love me, keep my commandments. So our observation, even though imperfectly, of his commandments is the best symbol, the best evidence of our love for Him. But most of us act as though the best expression of our love for Him is what we say we believe when we're asked. And obviously that's important. But it's nowhere near the imbalance in the Bible that we have in our heads about what real walking with God is about. So when we're looking at texts like this, it's very important that we take them just as seriously as, as if someone were correcting your doctrine. If someone's correcting your practice, that's just as important, at least as important, as correcting your doctrine. And I don't know about you, but when I look through these covenant stipulations, I'm finding all kinds of areas in my life that are out of whack where I'm not applying the covenant stipulations that God wanted for His people Israel. So I need forgiveness, I need repentance, and I trust you do too. We're going to look at a chapter today that once again takes us into how we are going to protect vulnerable people. It's amazing how important this is in the life with God, protecting vulnerable people. You find over and over again that God listens to the cries of vulnerable people who are being exploited. And He is going to avenge their cries. He is listening to them. 
And he uses that kind of language in this chapter. But you'll find it through the Psalms. you find it through the Pentateuch. And the prophets preached it over and over again. We've got to be very careful with vulnerable people. And we'll see several categories of vulnerable people in this chapter. And so when you go to your school or you go to your workplace or you, you go to your ministry today, uh, be sure that you have a special eye for vulnerable people because God really cares about them and He cares about you and the way that you deal with them. Because the way that you deal with vulnerable people shows how you believe God is dealing with you because you are the vulnerable person. That's the whole point. If you don't deal with vulnerable people graciously, mercifully, what the Bible is suggesting is that you don't understand how you got here in the first place before God because you were vulnerable. And so our expression of love toward vulnerable people simply demonstrates our knowledge of our own salvation. That's the reason it's so important uh, as an evidence in our lives. Well, let's look at chapter 24 and look at some of the categories of vulnerable people that men are supposed to protect. Chapter 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Take care in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this. 
When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Okay. We want to protect the vulnerable. And first of all, in these first five verses, we see that we want to protect the vulnerable in marriage. Protect the vulnerable in marriage. Isn't it interesting that by violating this commandment, in verse 4, look at this, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So this commandment about our marriages and our divorces and our remarriages is so that we'll not only not pollute our own lives, but so that we will not pollute the lives of others and bring God's judgment on the whole land, or in this case we could say the whole church. In other words, marriage is a communal responsibility. So if you have marriage problems in your church, you should use your influence to be sure that the brothers and sisters in that church are engaging the issues of marriage within your own church body. All the churches in Memphis should be doing this. Because if you do not uphold the standard and encourage people toward the standard, you're just simply bringing sin upon the whole land. That is the whole church of us, all of us. We're all in this together. So as is true with social justice toward the poor, as we'll see in a moment, our behavior affects our brothers and sisters. It is not just a private matter like most East Memphians believe, that if we have something to do with your marriage, that we're sticking our nose in business that doesn't belong to us. Oh, yes, it does belong to us. If you profess to be a Christian and you belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, your marriage does, in one sense, belong to everybody because it affects the way God looks at the entire church. We're all in this together. We're all family. And just as Malachi says in chapter 2, that when you marry the daughter of a foreign god, you desecrate the sanctuary. You're affecting negatively. You're polluting in that sense. You're corrupting the assembly of God. So you, we can get, see it here in verse 4 right away. This is a very important communal matter. Now, it's interesting. This is, this is I believe your notes uh, suggest this in the footnotes in your study Bible, that this is the only place where Old Testament is uh, regulated in the Old Testament. In fact, yeah, it does say it down there. This is the only Old Testament law about divorce. It's Divorce is assumed in some places, but this is the only law about it. And what I would like for us to notice, first of all, in these four verses, is that uh, uh, we're going to talk about women in divorce and marriage. But in the first three verses, notice that God regulates what he does not sanction. This is important. When Even if we break a law of God, he may still at times regulate how we handle the breaking of that law. But that doesn't mean he sanctions the breaking of the law. He simply loves us like our father. He knows that we're a bunch of dirty, rotten scoundrels, and he knows that we're going to violate his commandments. And so from time to time, he'll show you what to do. He'll say, don't do this, but if you do, do this. How gracious of him. 
What he could say is, don't do that, and if you do, I'll kill you. It reminds me of one of my old deacons uh, in a church uh, at the foothills of the Smokies that I pastored one time. He was the chairman of our deacons. He was an old country boy. And he says, you know, my daddy taught me a long time ago to obey my daddy. And I said, well, Larry, how did he do that? And he said, well, one day I didn't do what he told me to do. And he came into my bedroom and he had a baseball bat in his hand. And he said, son, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. He said, I never disobeyed my daddy again. Uh, That was it. Now, God could be that way, uh, certainly, if he wanted to. But he's not. He loves us. He cherishes us. He does not want to destroy us. He wants to discipline us. He wants us to enjoy the good life, the virtuous life. But he doesn't want to destroy us. So here he's regulating what he does not sanction. Now let's look at how divorce took, took place typically in Israel, and that's what's being described here. There was obviously some commandment that if you're going to divorce your wife, you have to give her legal evidence that she is a divorced woman. In other words, she's not at her own initiative going out and committing adultery by taking up with a second husband. And so to protect the woman, she was given a certificate of divorce. It was in writing. It was placed in her hand before she leaves the house. So she's in the house under that man's care, and when she leaves, she leaves with a certificate that then frees her from the obligation to remain married to him. That was obviously the justice uh, to protect the woman that was the case here. But the footnotes in the ESV, I think, make a really good point here that the reason she was not allowed to go back to him if she married a second man was likely because of the dowry. Remember that uh, a dowry uh, was given uh, for the, the woman to be married to the man. And she would lose that dowry uh, if she were divorced. So she goes to the second man and she gets a dowry. And if the first man remarries her, he claims the dowry again. He gets her, he gets her second dowry. That's the supposition, presupposition here that the ESV is suggesting that it was really an economic social justice issue that she not be ripped off from whatever economic support she would have had from that second man, particularly if she were divorced. I mean, I'm sorry, if she were widowed, that she not be taken in and have her dowry consumed again by a man who's likely to divorce her again. However, I'm, I'm not convinced of that completely. If you look at the language here, it says uh, uh, some, if you look at verse 1, because he found some indecency in her. Literally, in the, this is yerwat davar in Hebrew, which means literally nakedness of a thing. Nakedness of a thing. It doesn't necessarily mean nakedness, but it's a phrase that's properly translated here, something indecent. We found this back with warfare when guys were using the bathroom without covering it up. And God says, don't do such an indecent thing. It's the same phrase. So it's just something that's obviously grotesque and indecent. Perhaps it would be that someone saw her naked or she allowed herself to be seen naked or who knows what. But some way she did something indecent that would have royally embarrassed her husband. And she lost favor in his eyes and therefore, even though he shouldn't have, he divorced her. Because of the phrase indecent thing and its connection possibly with the sexual life, it seems to me that what's being referred to here is that once a woman has 
been joined in physical intimacy. And then she's put aside. She has been shamed. And then she takes up with another man so that now she's indecent to you or she's inaccessible to you now. So to take her back is like passing her around. It seems to me that this law regulates against serial sort of uh, adultery where you just, as long as you get the paperwork right, well, we can just pass this woman around. You take her today, then you divorce her tomorrow, give her back to me. It's like, it's like legal prostitution. And it seems to me that this text is regulating that kind of behavior in Israel. No, I want you to be committed to the woman. So let's not pass her around like a football and just take her back in your house because maybe you have a sexual appetite again and and, and her other old man died. No, don't pass her around like that because marriage is much more than just satisfying your, your temporal pleasures. It seems to me that that may be what's said. But nonetheless, you can see that the point is that she is being protected from being passed around. It is to protect the vulnerable, and particularly the women in divorce and remarriage. Now, that's why God regulates it, because when we break His law about marriage, it does expose other people to exploitation, whether it's the woman or the children. And we all know this, because many of us have been involved in divorce, some of us have been divorced, and we know how people get hurt through this. So the law is intending to regulate those who are vulnerable even after the divorce. And if you have been divorced, of course, you should be very careful to pay your alimony. You should be very careful to pay child support. You should be very careful to protect the vulnerable. Even if you were a lousy stinker and you never should have divorced her, no matter what the causes were, even if she were the stinker, you still look to protect vulnerable people. The first ones to exercise social justice toward in this community are the ones that have been hurt by you. Start where you are. And so you'll see in Israel there were laws regarding what you do when you divorce someone. And in this case, it has to do with remarriage. Now, what's really interesting is to see by the time of Jesus how Israel took Deuteronomy 24 and twisted it to their own desires. It's amazing how we can read the Bible, memorize the verses, and get the intent completely wrong. Isn't that amazing? You have people who will distort the Bible, but they have it memorized. They say of Yosef Vissarionovich Zhugashvili, which is a short name for Joseph Stalin, that he had the entire New Testament memorized. He had gone to a school in the state of Georgia not in in our country, but in in the uh, Soviet Union, he had been in seminary and trained as a priest. And he memorized the entire New Testament. But he was the butcher of the Ukraine. He put to death 30 million people just because they were his political opponents, or he thought they were. So you can memorize the Bible and completely miss its content, and it can have no effect on you. This was true with this text. Here's the way men in Israel typically took this text. This is what they did with it. They said, well, see, God does allow divorce. And all you have to do is give her a certificate of divorce. And some indecent thing would be, basically, if, I, if she doesn't find favor in my eyes. Then I have a legitimate right to divorce her. You see it in the text right here. That's what they did with this text. Now let's look what Jesus did with their distortion. But leave your finger in Deuteronomy 24. Turn over to Matthew 19. And they ask him, because this is the way the Pharisees, this is the clergy, this is the way they saw it. They couldn't imagine any other way to live but that the man would have the freedom to do what he wants. 
Who could imagine a life living with a woman you don't like? The Pharisees couldn't imagine such a thing. So they went to Jesus with this question. This is Matthew, this is on page 1860, and uh, Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's what a lot of people were saying. Anything indecent, anything that causes her to lose favor in my eyes, any cause. You see what had happened? Jesus is regulating something we do wrong so that we don't further damage the woman and the children. And what do we do? Instead of protecting the woman and the children, we use it as an excuse to do further evil. Oh, I've never done that, have you? And here's how he answered. Verse 4. Have you not read? And he takes them back to Genesis. He says, gentlemen, let's go beyond the regulation of your immorality. Let's go back to the original intent of morality itself and the original intent of God. He says, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The word hold fast, you know what that kind of language is? It's called covenantal language. Why? Because in Deuteronomy, God holds fast to His people and we hold fast to Him. This is classic covenantal language that's used with regard to a man and a woman. So He's saying, have you not heard from the beginning that God's idea was that you bind yourself to one another holding fast as in a covenant. Hold fast to His wife and the two shall become one flesh. You can say either in a mystical way they become as one or you can say, this is another way to interpret one flesh, they're like family. They're the same flesh. They share DNA. You marry your wife and she's now your relative. She's your wife. She's one flesh with you. Or you can say, no, because of the fleshly experience, we actually become bound as though we were one flesh. Like Paul says, does not a man love his own body? You're to love your wife the way you love your own body because you're one flesh and she gets the same treatment as your body gets from you. Looking at some of you, I'd suggest you treat her better. Uh, (laughs) So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then look how Jesus goes on to quote the Old Testament. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in the covenant, in Israel, when you join a man and a woman, who has done this? Well, you say, my, you know, it's a parentally arranged marriage. My daddy did it. He picked out the, the woman. Or you might say today, oh, man, I did it. Here's what God's saying. I did it. I used your desire and I used your wisdom or lack of it. And I used your, the situation in your life and I did it by my providence. I put you together. And when you vowed together, when you took oaths one to another and it was bound together before God's face, then I did it. So now it's my institution, not just yours. So we've already seen how Israel has a stake in your marriage. Well, guess what? God has a stake in your marriage and He has something to say about it. And He intends to regulate it. He instituted it. He made it sacred. And He intends to regulate it. And He has a word on it. And if we don't, it's going to be uh, to our own detriment. 
Now, look what they said to him in verse 7. They were astonished. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Notice how they say that. Why did Moses command them to give a certificate of divorce? You remember what we just read in Deuteronomy 24? When you write out a certificate of divorce. He didn't say, you must write out a certificate of divorce. Does this remind you of the Garden of Eden? When Eve says to the snake, he told me not to eat of it and not even to touch it. God didn't say don't touch it. She is now taking what he said and making it look ridiculous. He didn't say don't touch it. He said don't eat it. So already she's thinking she's victimized. This God who's so restrictive, don't, don't even look at it. Don't touch it. And she's making him appear to be something he's not. And here, what do we do with the Bible? We caricature it. We distort it for our own pleasure, our own selfish interests, and we end up doing it to our own destruction. And here's what they're saying. They said, why did Moses command? And look what Jesus answers in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. Because you, with the heart you have, couldn't keep His commandments. So therefore, we're going to allow divorce and regulate it. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, look at this, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. So you notice how he doesn't say except for some indecent thing. No, no, no. Jesus says, look, God's intent from the beginning was that we stick together in covenant bonds. And when sin does break out, which it always does, and it goes to the level of sexual immorality, porneia is the Greek word that translates what Jesus was saying, sexual immorality, except for that, and marries another, commits adultery. So when you have a marriage that breaks on some grounds other than sexual immorality, and I think... The new Paul works that sexual immorality out to say also irreconcilable desertion because what's happened when a man or a woman deserts irreconcilably, they've abandoned the marriage bed. It is a form of sexual sin to desert someone irreconcilably. So it's still in this area of sexual immorality, but it includes irreconcilable desertion. So unless those are the grounds, then Jesus is saying it's adultery when you guys divorce. You can't just willy-nilly write out a certificate because you don't like something in your wife because of mutual incompatibility, irreconcilable differences? He says, baloney. It was always meant to be a bond that's only broken by true adultery. Now back to Deuteronomy 24. So you can see then that the intent of Deuteronomy 24 from the words of Jesus is not to encourage divorce. It's simply to say, when you screw up, would you deal with it this way, please? Uh, let's have certain uh, boundaries on not just divorce, but let's have boundaries on remarriage. And there are boundaries on remarriage. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it to you again. Uh, leave your finger in Deuteronomy 24. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And let's look at, furthermore, some of the boundaries. You know, when you are divorced, once again, this is God's grace to us. He says, I'm, I'm sticking with you, dirty, rotten scoundrels. You know, you, you disobey. I'm still, I'm still with you. I'm still going to guide you and give you wisdom to get out of this incredible mess you got into. And look, guys, we've all been in messes. I've been in big messes. I mean, of my own making. What I keep remembering when I'm in those messes is this. 
there is a way out of this. <laughs> I don't know what it is yet, but I know there's a way out of it. And here's how I know for sure, because God loves me and He has not abandoned me. He has got a way for me to get out of this mess in a way that honors Him. Now, it may kill me, but I'll get out of the mess. So as long as you're willing to die, you can get out of any mess. The problem is you're trying to get out of the mess and be wealthy, or you're trying to get out of the mess and have a great reputation, or you're trying to get out of the mess and stay alive. That's the problem. But if you're willing to lay your life down, which is what repentance is, for the sake of Jesus Christ, you can get out of any mess. So don't fear getting in something so bad that your life is completely screwed up and hopeless. No, here's your problem. You, you want your cake and eat it too. You want to get out of the mess and then have everything you wanted to have. And that's not God's way for you necessarily. His way for you is the way of real life, which comes by repentance and faith. Now, look at this. Uh, uh, I'm in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, and here Paul is talking to the married and the unmarried. Uh, and in verse 10, he says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. All right, you could end everything right there, but here he goes again. But if she does, isn't that wonderful? But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, here's what Paul is saying in the New Testament about this sacred bond that comes under stress even to the case where a woman just can't stand you anymore and says, i got to go get a breath of fresh air for about six months and live on my own. And that happens a lot, doesn't it? It happens to some of you in this room. So she can't take it anymore. So she's going to go out there. Now, here's, here's what Paul is saying. She should not separate herself from her husband. She should have come for pastoral counsel much earlier, gotten this thing worked out so that she could at least live there happily and love her husband even though he wasn't satisfying all of her needs. She should have done that. But she didn't. So if she's going to move out, don't divorce your husband. And don't, you husbands, divorce her. In other words, you can either remain out there as single people or be reconciled to one another. So this is what he's saying. He's now regulating remarriage after you do what you shouldn't do. So if you divorce, the implication here would be remain unmarried or be reconciled to your first and only wife, even if you get a divorce. So you say to one another, it's most unfortunate what has happened. We've both misbehaved. We're now divorced. But you say to your former wife, I want you to know this. My commitment is to follow 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. I'm going to remain unmarried uh, unless I can be reconciled to you. Now, when she goes up and takes up with another man, and gets married, you no longer have that commitment. Why? Because there's no lingering obligation. Because you couldn't be reconciled to her in marriage. She's not available to you anymore. Deuteronomy 24. She can't come back to her first husband when she's taken up a second husband. So you wait on her, and as long as she remains single and celibate, then she is eligible for reconciliation with you which means you have a lingering obligation. This is the phrase you want to remember. Do you have a lingering obligation to protect the vulnerable? Do you have a lingering obligation? 
If she is celibate and has not taken up with a man, you have a lingering obligation to remain single or be reconciled to her. That's the point. And I think that's how you take the the full corpus of what's being said in the Scriptures about marriage and uh, divorce and remarriage and put it all together. For for what that's worth, uh, see, see if you can argue with that. Give me an email and we'll talk back and forth. But you can see that God has an interest in how you handle your divorce. It's not as though you say, well, I'll go to church on Sunday and as long as I'm married or single and celibate, then I'm welcome there and God has a plan for my life and I'll study the Bible and I can really put it into practice. But man, if I'm getting a divorce, I'm going to have to step outside the church for a little while, go take care of business, and then come back. That's the way most guys think. If there's a dual morality. No, look, you're married, you're divorced, you've got a great marriage, you've got a lousy marriage. Uh, you've fornicated or you haven't fornicated. Whatever you are, you're right there in the church. And you deal with it right there. And the point is, come clean, go deal with a pastor or a mature elder or some spiritual mentor and get yourself dealt with in your sin, in your problem, right there. Instead of nicely excusing yourself for a season so you can get all this legal mumbo-jumbo taken care of, do whatever the hell you want to, and then come back to church. And and, And I meant that literally. It is from hell. You're doing whatever you want from the pit of hell. Then you come back and want to kind of start all over. Now that you've gotten what you want over here in the civil realm, now you can come back and play church again. Now let's just deal with it all right here. The whole mess as brothers in the church, let's just deal with the whole thing together. That's, that's what the Bible is saying. Uh, so now you'll, look, you'll notice uh, when we come to verse 5, uh, oh well, in verse 4, he, he not only regulates what he does not sanction, but he protects the victims. She has been defiled. And when we do these kinds of things, it's an abomination before the Lord and sin upon the land. Now, notice in verse 5b that it also deals with newlyweds. Have you ever thought about this? Uh, when, when a guy is newlywed, guys, he needs our encouragement. And what do we do? Well, we take him to a bachelor's party with some stripper and think that's kind of cool, you know, get your last fling in. Boy, what a great preparation for marriage that is, huh? Boy, she's really fired up about a honeymoon night knowing that her husband was with a stripper the night before. I mean, what in the world gets into people's minds when you think about how to encourage someone in newlywed status? Or most most of you didn't do that. Some of you did, I could tell from what your reaction was. But... <clears throat> But most of us, what we, what we used to do is you go to the rehearsal dinner. And I've been to some raunchy ones. I mean, a couple of them, I just got up and left. But in the old days, uh, before I learned better to coach people before the rehearsal dinner, I used to go and hear these guys, fraternity brothers, stand up and tell about the girls the guy was hanging out with during his college years. I'm thinking, man, that's a mighty encouragement. Man, that's going to make her really want to go after it tomorrow night, you know. And just undermining the poor slob, you know. Not that he didn't deserve it, but, but it's no help at all. And I, you remember that show, The Newlywed Show? You know, they would bring people in Hollywood in their first year of marriage and embarrass the daylights out of them in public, and they were foolish enough to let themselves be humiliated on public TV. I have no idea why they did that. But it was the exact opposite of the way we ought to be treating newlyweds. Instead of embarrassing them to death and getting them into arguments, we need to be sure that we're nurturing and cultivating them. Some of you teach Sunday school where you have newlyweds. Be sure that you've thought through how to care for these people. This is a fragile relationship. 
You know, those first three or four years of marriage, uh, I mean, you had to stay up till two or three in the morning several times to work out the simplest disagreements because you don't understand each other yet. I mean, when you've been married 39 years like me, I mean, you just say, well, yeah, that's, that's A, that's D, that's 104, you know, C. I know, that's, I know that argument. Yeah, that's fine. We'll, we're ready to go. And it takes about five minutes, you know, to have a, have a massive argument. Uh, well, these newlyweds, I mean, they, they've got to deal with all this stuff. And then they're, you know, if they're a little older, like some of them are these days when they first get married, you know, they've been living singles for a decade, you know, now they're going to try to live with a roommate. I mean, you know, they got all these adjustments to make and bumping into each other and, and, and not being in agreement. And there are just all kinds of conflicts. And those of you who are older or who have been through it, you ought to have enough mercy to be sure you're cultivating them, nurturing them, and encouraging them. Hey, you know, you're going to get through this fine. You know, first three years, you need some extra help. What about those of you who can encourage them with their counseling? You know, um, here at Second, we have, I think, a good practice of bringing them back in after three months of marriage, bringing them back in after 12 months of marriage. At least give them a checkup in that first year to see how things are going, to encourage them along the way. Every once in a while, we'll pick up on some major problems that really need to be addressed. Well, do you have a plan in your churches to be sure to just give people a confidential checkup so that if they need some help in certain ways, you can give them help. Well, notice what they do in the Old Testament. That guy's not going to war. You know? Take that uniform off for a year. Go home and bring pleasure to your wife, which is one translation, or enjoy your wife, which is another one. And I think both are true. They should learn how to enjoy each other in the first year of marriage. And what a tragedy if they get married in the Old Testament and she's going to be a widow if he goes to war, and he's not even gotten her pregnant yet, and she doesn't have a son to take care of her in her old age. So you notice the social justice. If you take a woman, and you're obligated to her now, and you're her protector, be sure we give this man every opportunity to build a relationship with her and to provide for her in that first year of marriage. Give him a break. Those of you who are supervisors in places of business or those of you who lead particular ministries and somebody gets married on your staff or in your employment, you need to do some things. You don't need to make it a public policy or or a business policy. Just make your own personal policy. And you set up how this guy is going to be giving his wife the time he needs to be successful in that marriage. And whether those moments make a difference, any difference in the world or not, let me tell you what will really make a difference. That guy will know you're on his side. That guy is likely to come to you if he needs advice on his marriage because he's already seen how you've paid a price to invest in his marriage by sending him home early on Friday. Or every once in a while, he needs to go home for lunch. Do you know what I mean? So every once in a while you do things. You check in with him and say, hey, have you ever brought, have you brought flowers home to your wife? Yeah, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, here, here's $20. No, I'm sorry. Here's $50. <laughs> that shows my age. Here's $100. And go get her a nice arrangement for the dining room table. Huh? Yeah, here's $100, and I want you to go learn how to shop for flowers. Have you ever thought about doing something like that first year of marriage? Get in there and encourage these marriages. Why? Because it is of the very essence of the social fabric of Memphis in every neighborhood. Cultivating the marriages is the most important thing you can do for the next generation. You get mom and daddy happy with each other, well, guess who else is going to be happy? The three little ones. They want to be home. 
they're socially adjusted. Why? Because their parents get along. And they've learned how to love each other. That's one of the most important social justice investments you can make for the children's sake is to teach that blockheaded man how to love his wife and do it in an encouraging way and pay the price for it, whatever it costs you. So he's saying protect the vulnerable and newlyweds are vulnerable. Now the positive thing about being vulnerable is they're also malleable. You can help them. They can develop some patterns that, that you, after 25 years of marriage, you old knucklehead, we can't change you very much. But you get somebody there early on, they can actually make some changes in life. So for all kinds of reasons, we're protecting them. Now, notice in verses 6 through 22, the rest of the chapter, and we're only dealing with chapter 24 today, in case you didn't notice, we're going to protect the vulnerable not only in marriage but in community. And there's three categories of vulnerable people that I notice in this text. And the first one is the poor. And we'll see that in verse 6 and verses 10 through 15. We've got to have a special eye for the poor, and we've seen this throughout Deuteronomy. We see it throughout the Old Testament. God has an eye for the poor. We must have an eye for the poor. What's the first thing he mentions? To lend justly. In verse 6 and verses 10 through 13, he says, No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge. For that would be taking a life in pledge. So he's saying, for collateral on the loans, you don't take something from someone, or it's more than collateral, it's a pledge. You actually, it's like I say, look, uh, I I left my money at home here, I'll leave my watch here. He looks at it and says, this watch is only worth $4.99. That's not going to be sufficient pledge. Okay, how about my jacket? You know, I'll take that off. In other words, you leave something of equal value until the other person gets paid. That's more like what a pledge is. And here's what the Bible is saying. Don't take someone's means of employment, means of feeding themselves and their family, as pledge. Don't take their whole meal, which may be the only valuable thing they have because, you know, before every meal, the wife would grind the grain and produce the flour for the bread for the day. If you take that from her, they have no bread. That's like taking a life in pledge. So... If you're going to make a loan, sometimes you will not get the collateral you actually need because you're not going to take their life substance from them. And then in verses 10 through 13, notice what else you're not going to do. You're not going to take his cover at night. Now, in in 2nd millennium B.C., a poor man had a cloak, and that was also his blanket. It was everything. His cloak was everything. You don't ever take a cloak from a poor person as a pledge. If you do, you give it back to him by sundown. Why? It gets cold when the sun goes down. So you don't take away his means of medical care or his means of physical care to himself. So if you're dealing with the poor, you're not going to get quid pro quo. It's going to take extra effort on your part. You're not going to always have the collateral you want or the pledges that you want because you can't take sometimes the only things they own it's like taking their car from them as a pledge. And that's their means to get to work. What are you thinking? It's just unjust. When you're dealing with the poor, please deal with them as poor. Don't deal with them like you do your next-door neighbor who's got money in the bank. So lend justly. And just, justice in the Old Testament doesn't just mean courtroom justice. It doesn't just mean quid pro quo. That's the way we think of the word justice. No, in the Old Testament, justice means 
Social justice, mishpat, means dealing with people the way God wants you to deal with them. That's justice. So you have to change your whole idea of justice uh, from the typical 21st century Western viewpoint. But lend justly. That means non-threatening collateral in verses 6, 12, and 13. Nothing that would take their livelihood away from them. But notice in verses 10 and 11, also, there's not to be inappropriate invasion of privacy. Don't go into a house to collect his pledge. Why would you not go into his house and look around to see what's worthy of the loan you're making? Because you're just stripping him naked of his dignity and of his privacy. Oh, yeah, you're thinking, well, this guy's holding out on me. I'll go around and look around and just see what he's got. Well, and then I'll say, hey, Joe, this right here, this, this diamond ring, that would be proper pledge. Well, maybe he doesn't want to give you his wife's diamond ring. Why don't you give him some privacy? Why don't you let him come to the door and give you what he's offering? And you leave his privacy there. And it's amazing how when you've got a little bit of money, sometimes you think that gives you a right to just invade people's privacy, to know more about them than that they want to be known, and to treat them in a way that removes their dignity and their humanity. And you'll notice in the Old Testament that God is far more concerned about you're treating people in a humane manner than He is that you're getting a good deal from the poor. He's a lot more concerned about that. So you notice that in verses 10 and 11. And then 13b, I wish we had more time to deal with this, but He says, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Righteousness. Now, if you're a Protestant, you normally think of righteousness as being what we get from Christ, what we get from God as a total package, perfect righteousness, which alone justifies us before God's face and allows us to go into heaven. And that would be correct. That's called justifying righteousness. The word righteous, righteousness and justification come from the same Greek word. It's the same word. And that's the reason Paul says, quoting the Psalms in Romans 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. He says, no matter who you are, faithful Jew, crazy Gentile, all of you, none of you can put forward a righteousness that satisfies God and admits you into heaven. That's correct. But there's another sense in which the word righteousness is used. It's not this perfect righteousness which alone gets you into heaven and therefore which is an alien righteousness imputed to you through faith. That is true. That's justifying righteousness. But there's another way of looking at righteousness which is actually the righteousness that is infused into your life. It's called sanctification. And it's real. And the writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. And Jesus says about this righteousness, this sanctifying righteousness, He says that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is talking about a real, but not perfect, but a genuine and real righteousness. And it has to be there in the Christian life. Otherwise, we're phonies. Flat phonies. So what Moses is saying is this will be your righteousness. This is how you attain this practical day-to-day sanctification or righteousness. It's a practical righteousness. And it's, it must be in our lives. So he's saying, 
Look, the way you deal with poor people is your righteousness. That's the way God looks at your life and sees whether His life in your life is making any difference at all. And notice, not only to lend justly, but secondly, to pay promptly. And of course, if you're dealing with poor people, uh, they take whatever they earn and they buy food that day. And paying, maybe if, if you're employing people who are poor, can I give you an idea on this? If you're employing someone at minimum wage and you know that they're struggling, they've got to be struggling, and they start out with you, and they didn't just leave a job immediately and waiting on their bi-weekly paycheck, but they're starting with you, why don't you think about just giving them two weeks' pay free? Why don't you pay them every day and then give them a bi-weekly check in addition to paying them every day? at the end of the first two-week period so that you allow them to eat for two weeks and then you give them a bi-weekly check and they can get on top of life again. And then the next bi-weekly check is fine and you can talk to them and see if they have adequate personal financial skills so they know how to take that bi-weekly check and break it into 14 equal portions and eat for the next 14 days. Gentlemen, this is mercy. It's going beyond what the law courts require of you but I don't think it's going beyond what the Bible requires of you. That when you're dealing with a poor person, remember, they have to eat every day. And if they have to wait two weeks to get the biweekly check, maybe they're not going to be able to eat. I don't know. I just think it's worth checking into if you're employing people who are at minimum wage level. As a matter of fact, I really don't think minimum wage is high enough. And you might think about paying what they call a living wage and not minimum wage. Pay more than you can get by with with the law courts. Go up to a living wage. Living wage is what a a man with two children and a wife can live on in Memphis. And I think you're getting up, what is it, around 22000 a year to be able to do that. You might think about that. Uh, here at the church some years ago, we moved from minimum wage to living wage uh, for our entry-level uh, workers. But nonetheless, here he's saying pay promptly. The point is be sure they eat. You're not just concerned about getting equal pay for a day's work. You're concerned about their eating and providing for their families. So be sure and keep that in mind when you're dealing with poor people. Then, secondly, you have not only the poor but the unprotected. And here he's saying if a man is found stealing one of his brothers and selling him into slavery, that's a capital offense. Why? You've taken his life from him. This is serious business for anybody in the world involved in such a thing. And right now we have more people in slavery than in the history of the world. There are 2 million children right now who are being traded as sex slaves. This requires major intervention. Some of you are involved in these things. We ought to all find a way to support intervention on this. Our work in Cambodia, massive numbers of young girls who are being kidnapped and sold into slavery. And through World Relief, we're trying to intervene on that whole process. It's very, very difficult. But it must be done. God hates it. He's saying, execute. Treat the kidnapper the way you would a murderer. Because this is social murder. Secondly, care for the sick. Deal with leprous diseases the way we told you to in the Bible so they don't spread and so the leper's taken care of. And he uses Miriam as an example. Remember Miriam, how God treated Miriam? She was quarantined for seven days until she was healed up. Thirdly, protect the innocent. The laws of Hammurabi allowed. You'd find this in the laws of Hammurabi. If... And Hammurabi was about the same time as Moses. So it's very helpful to compare the laws of a Near Eastern uh, jurist 
with the law of Moses. And you find some interesting contrasts, and this is one of them. In the laws of Hammurabi, if a man built a house for another man, the house caves in and kills the family. Laws of Hammurabi allow that then the man who constructed the house, his family also be put to death. Moses is saying, no, don't make the children pay for the sins of their fathers. And don't make the fathers pay for the sins of their children. Let every man pay himself, whether it's capital offense or some other offense. Now, also you notice in the Old Testament, Moses is real clear about this. What we do affects the next generation for generations to come. And don't you see it? Isn't that what bothers you most when you look at your children? They're doing the same dadgum thing you used to do. <laughs> and you go, oh, gosh, I thought, I'd, I thought I'd hid that. No, it keeps coming out generation to generation. So Bible teaches that. It's one reason that our sanctification is so important. It's affecting a whole bunch of people behind us. That's true. But that doesn't mean that, that your children should pay for your sins. And be sure, once again, let's talk about hiring. Uh, it's a great thing to have a reputation from a father, but what about some of the guys in this community who don't have great reputations from their fathers? Have you given them special consideration? Or are you making them pay for the sins of their fathers? by excluding them from certain opportunities because their name is not as good as somebody else's name. We need to be really careful about that. That's called social justice. Then, thirdly, protect the powerless. Well, who are the powerless? Well, you know who they are. They've been mentioned before in chapter 14. The sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. These are people who can't protect themselves, and they don't have political power. Do not pervert the justice due them. Do not pervert the justice due them. How so? Well, verse 17, the collateral for loans. Don't take a widow's garment and pledge. We've already seen that. Secondly, give them opportunities to reap. And aren't these wonderful laws in verses 19 through 21? And we need to be thinking about their equivalents right here in Memphis. If you have a business and you've got some extras, well, instead of trying to soak out the last penny you can get out of those by selling them to some wholesale operation, or second operation, why don't you go to Joanne Ballard and ask if neighborhood Christian centers can use some of those things? I mean, it's just constantly thinking about how even the mistakes you make, let's say that, that you are making a pair of shoes and put an extra hole in them. You know, there are some people who would be very glad to have those shoes. Instead of trying to soak out, you know, $2 per pair of shoes you can get for it, why don't you find out what you can do with that for the poor? And why don't you ever once in a while even take the best stuff you produce and see what you can do for the poor? Some of you who are lawyers are thinking about how you can take your law practice and give some of it to the poor. So you're always thinking about the margins, at least the margins of your field and your production and your business, and thinking, what does my business have to do with blessing the poor? And basically look at the motives for doing all this in verses 18, 19, and 22. First of all, don't forget your motive. Here are your motives. First of all, God redeemed you. Who were you? You were poor. You're a sinner. There's not any poorer you can possibly get than being a sinner. That's as poor as you can get because let me tell you, sinners are bereft of any ability to do anything good. Sinners are bereft of any hope of an eternal life. Sinners are bereft of any favor from God because God destroys sinners. You are poor and what did God do for you? He made you rich. Don't forget where you came from. Your salvation is all the paradigm you need to put into practice 
in the community. Just take your salvation, how you got here, and then remember who is most like what I was. Well, I'll tell you who's most like what you were. The person who has the least in this world is the most like what you were as a sinner. Someone who's hopeless, who doesn't have anything, and doesn't have the means to correct himself. So remember your salvation. Secondly, remember that God commands you. He says, therefore, I command you. This is not an option. It's not for those of you who want to get an A plus instead of an A. It's not for those of you who want to go to graduate school instead of just undergraduate school. No, this is for everybody. And thirdly, God will bless you. Isn't this amazing? The Proverbs tell us that he who gives to the Lord, gives to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will repay you. What kind of interest rates do you think he pays when you loan him something? You want to loan God some money and get divine interest rates on it? Give to the poor. That's what he's saying. I will bless you. He ties up the promises of his favor in your life in our dealings with the poor in Mishpat, in justice to them. This is what the Christian life is about. It's not just what you believe, gentlemen. It's definitely what you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the covenant that binds us to you irrevocably. Thank you for all of the forgiveness of all of our covenant violations through the blood of Jesus Christ. And thank you for the calling upon our lives now to live as men who trust you and believe you and love you. And may we do so in the way that we deal with marriage, the way we deal with the poor, the dispossessed, and the powerless. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you, gents.